Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. From the hills of Strawberry Canyon. I'm Coin Dang, and this is the Golden Bear Cast. Let's go, go Bears! What is up, Cal fans? We are back with another episode of the California Golden Bear Cast. As you heard from starting linebacker Coin Dang, we are in the building. Not a momentous or happy occasion, but nonetheless, we're going to be grateful and take that abundance mindset right rob and some pump some sunshine it's just gonna be an enlightening happy joyful maybe the opposite of all that podcast but i i am your one of your hosts we are also a proud member of the blue wire podcast network rob is our other host here rob what's going on how you doing bud I don't know. I I honestly like. Are we going to be sunshine pumping? Like, I know you and I are are somewhat people consider optimists in the Cal football realm, and of the the talking heads of the Cal football realm. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But man, there's like there's there there are still positives to take away, and there's still there's still a little bit of like wiggle room and. And room for improvement. Maybe there's a lot of room for improvement, but from a expectation perspective, I don't think we have to significantly lower expectations yet. But we are getting to the point where, you know, there are some very very key benchmarks that need to be met over the next few weeks. But well, that's my general sense. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. But the nice thing is, when you predict the team to go seven and five, this is part of the journey. Seven and people forget that the five losses are pretty down, That's disappointing feelings. Yeah. However, I'm not going to lie. It's not going to be sunshine pumping. There's just no way. The you, overall mood of the, I don't think this is the Cal fan base, but the overall mood of anybody that influences how I view Cal is somber, <laughs> not great people are not happy that is that is clear as day from the twitter verses and like the comment section of right for cal and like nam's the novel or nick's monday column or 
Heck, even the instant reaction slash rate the game post. Like, it is... People are not happy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna talk about what happened around the Pac-12. Um, I don't think we need to, um, but we can talk about the Pac-12 North just for a, a little minute here, just because people forget, like, you know, what happens around the conference does impact like our competitiveness, like to, which is the ultimate goal, you know, for us is to try and win the Pac-12 North. To try and get to a Pac-12 championship game and to win that Pac-12 championship game and to get to a Rose Bowl. Like, that is the ultimate, ultimate goal here. And the first step in that is to be competitive in the Pac-12 North. And by every single team, except for maybe Oregon, actually even Oregon, basically shitting their pants in opening week, if you're in the Pac-12 North, has made the loss to Nevada a little bit more manageable just because we're still in the running like this loss and takes out of it this win might have vaulted us you know as a you know even after just week one just a little bit more into the top realm of the Pac-12 North but Oregon beats Fresno State by seven points um at the and that's by a touchdown in the fourth quarter um Washington loses to Montana at home 13-7. Stanford loses at Kansas State 24-7. Oregon State loses to Purdue 30-21. Washington State loses to Utah State 26-23. Like every single team <laughs> lost except for Oregon. And even Oregon barely got out. And you know the the Autzen fans were like getting like restless and and there were moments where I was like, "Oh, they could they could probably boo right here." But they didn't. But, uh, there was there was a lot of let's fire our offensive coordinator <laughs> yeah. week one. Who who is this guy? Yeah, I mean, wa- Washington fans went into full meltdown mode of like, yeah. I, I want out of Jimmy Lake. <laughs> like, so I mean, here's the thing, and we'll just jump right into it. My one of my first takeaways that has been consistent since leaving the stadium has one I think every I don't know how many people listened to the interview that you did with the gentleman who was ragging on me for not being there (laughs) Nathan from the Reno slant Nathan from the Reno slant he was really good and if you listen to that you start to I think build it build an understanding of the fact that this game against Nevada wasn't going to be an easy one by any means Mm -hmm. and in addition to that, let's take a second to kind of step back and look at the larger trends of the Pac-12 North versus some of their opponents. And the first good example is obviously Oregon being basically run up into, you know, they were down by three with six minutes left, 24-21 to Fresno State. I th- or was that the, yeah, I believe that was correct. 24-31. Yep, you were correct. And the, so it, the end was, yeah, so they ended up Oregon won 31-24, right? Yep. So there, that's kind of what started it. Sanford gets molly whopped. And then you have the craziness, which was Washington losing four road receivers and then being totally inept on offense and losing to Montana. But as you look at the opponents, there's one key consistent aspect of that, which is, and Rob, I think you touched on this. They all played full, if not like, maybe double the amount of games oh, last close season to a, close to a full season than 
any of these Pac-12 North teams. And what division out of all of college football? We're going to leave out Vanderbilt. We're going to leave out you know some of these other programs that also took losses. But I don't think that those are insignificant. Those are key data points in saying, if you look at the craziness of last year, where it hit the hardest, it's hard to argue that it wasn't the Pac-12 North. And or the Pac-12 just in general, I think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Pac-12 North was just a disaster. Disaster. And then you come and you sort of see this. Nevada played twice as many games as Cal mm-hmm. last year. And then you also come in and you see teams like Oregon struggle and, you know, another Mountain West team, Utah State, do well, you know, beat Washington State. So now it's sort of like feels like maybe there's a really big difference between those teams that had that full season versus Cal that had four games, one that was like a total throwaway and then a spring ball. And I think you can take some solace in that and say, look at the data around the landscape of college football and understand that there were upsets happening that don't really happen. That haven't really happened in a, in at least since I've been a fan. And we, we used to get one or two, right? The FCS yeah. Appalachian state, I think Michigan, it was ball state yeah. over Michigan Appalachian state. So you get one normally we had like seven, eight. <laughs> there were so many. And I think that you can't necessarily look at this game in isolation and not take in the other data points that are happening across our league and then across other leagues in college football. I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, like last year, like after end of the year, right? You know, when when we're going over the recap of the four games we played. And I think most general Cal fans would all agree or at least, at least the writers that, you know, we were talking to would agree that the offense that Cal was putting out or like any other team really was putting out there, if they weren't competitive, they that wasn't going to be really the team that you were going to see the following year, which is this season in 2021. Because why would you showcase everything in a meaningless four-game season that potentially had game canceled? Um, and then we actually thought, that, that would help them leading into this season. But in actuality, what we're seeing now is that the implications of last year and COVID is impact, more impactful going into this week one than anything else. I think that was the big like moment, right, of just seeing all these teams start losing and upset games and not looking prepared. Um and I don't know if it's a preparation thing. I honestly don't. I think it's honestly just a, I don't know how to break it down. But one of the things I was talking to with uh, some other writers on the site was, I don't think you can disregard the entire fact of not playing in a stadium with fans and like having the pressure of fans in attendance, um, whether you're performing well or underperforming like that. It's there for all of these guys. So that added with like some of the youth added with a new system like just all across the board just did not look like I don't know it didn't look complete is if you look at it from a full game perspective and we're just talking about I'm just talking about Cal um but man it was a 
as you said, it was just one of those weekends where you're like, this usually doesn't happen. I don't think it's something that's going to happen, you know, moving forward. I just think week one is like one of those, like everyone's still getting their sea legs out from under them, like of going through COVID and all that. And maybe the excitement maybe got the best of them. Um, maybe it didn't. Maybe they were nervous, whatever it may be. I think there was there was definitely some lingering like COVID stuff and emotional um, preparation things in, in my mind that went into to this game all across the country. Yeah, I totally agree. You see that the theme is pretty consistent across all sorts of different programs and upsets. And it was just a, a wild week. Why would, you know, the question then becomes, why wouldn't it have factored? And I think what I might say as a reactionary person would be, well, it didn't affect them on the first two drives. Mm. Right. And I think that is, that can be true. And it also can be true that Nevada adjusted their defense. And we might have been forced into things that were unfamiliar, less practiced than others. And when we got into the unfamiliar, and unfamiliar in the greater in the greater scope of almost a total throwaway season last season and now your first game back that we looked like we had the jitters a little bit yeah i think even from like a like a team and preparation standpoint from what we saw in the first two drives versus the rest of the game like i had discussions with people all all week long or all weekend long, just talking about like what went wrong, what did we do, um, and my conclusion was this. And let me say, I'm gonna say my conclusion with the caveat of we have to wait for the TCU game. In my mind, I think the TCU game is a huge barometer to what we saw this week. Like, and I'll explain why. So my whole thing is that. I think maybe they might have gone into this game not overlooking their opponent and not looking forward to TCU, but saying, hey, let's limit this. This is the first game back from COVID. Let's limit the menu a little bit. I think we and then the coaches probably said, I think we can beat this team by doing X, Y and Z. Right. And that's probably all we're going to need to beat this team. They come into the game. They execute X, Y, Z. They go up 14 zero and they're going. It's working. We're doing this. Nevada, instead of just going ABC, start to do ABCDE. And we go, crap, we didn't prep for D and E. We only prep for A, B, and C. Um, and that think that's kind of what we heard Nico talk about in the postgame conference, where they said, Hey, we should have prepped for them to play, you know, too high. Um, but we didn't, but we still should have been ready for it. And I think they kind of got punched in the mouth a little bit. And it was just they they didn't have the game plan and, and everything ready to adjust for the other things that they saw. And then it just it came down into this. Now, that's why I say the TCU game is very important because you I can give you that excuse for the first game. But if you do the exact same thing in the second game and look underprepared, um, the the game plan doesn't have any room for adjustments and changes and any real adjustment factors to combat whatever adjustments the other team is making. 
then there's a real problem. Then there's a problem of like, are we too basic? Like in terms of a base on, on particularly on offense, we can talk about the defense later, um, but particularly on the offense. So I think that's where we stand right now is as I tweeted it out. I'm like, I'm at the panic button. I've opened the box where to click the panic button, but I'm not going to click it yet. I'm going to click it after the TCU game because I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt of at least one game and then to get the jitters, to get their mind right. And anything that we saw, like it wasn't, but if it happens again at TCU, then this isn't a trend or if it's, it's not a one-off it's like, this is it's fact. It's fact now. Like what we saw in 2020, like that offense and what we saw at Nevada and the play calling and all that is what we're going to have to expect for the rest of the season. I don't know. That's tough. I don't know. Two games. That's very. You could easily lose two C- TCU. Look like absolutely terrible. Come back home, play Sacramento State, win, play Washington, who looks abysmal, win, be two and two heading into the rest of the Pac-12 play. Come out the other side, seven and five. Right. I I just don't. Every single game is winnable. Tell me, there's not a single game I look at. Well, maybe I, UCLA, yeah, especially after week one. Yeah, UCLA. UCLA, yeah. like that's it. And who would have thought we'd be saying that? Right. So, well, I guess I guess I should clarify. My comment isn't about the wins and losses, because I believe our defense is good enough to keep us in any games, and just like offensive execution from their end doesn't allow them to score, and we end up winning a game like seventeen ten. Like right, like that could easily happen. But I, I'm just saying from a from an offensive perspective is because that's where the biggest frustrations lie from the Nevada game. If that doesn't change, like we're always going to be on this edge of our seat of can we score enough to win? Like is the burden of of the game going to be purely on the defense? Like so that's where I stand. I don't know about the wins and losses. That's I don't think I don't I haven't even looked that far. I'm just saying from an offensive perspective and the scheme and everything that we should expect from the offense for this year probably might be like what we see at the TCU game. I think there's enough data there by that point to figure that out. What I would be surprised about would be you guys have talked about, I mean, we talked about it when we did the interview with you on the podcast about the use of the tight end. Right. And how different this year is going to be. And we yeah. didn't see it at all. We saw three uh, three passes to the tight end spots, I believe. Tonjus. Tonjus. Latu. Tonjus made a catch. Tonjus didn't make a catch. And Latu didn't make a catch. So was the spike to the spike was going to Tonjus? The spike was going to Tonjus. So I think that what? <laughs> it was the fourth game last year. We played Oregon. Fourth game last year? Uh, that's right. Oh, last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're correct. And that's when we looked our best? Last year? Yep. Offensively. I'd give, I'd give it four games offensively before I'd make any rash decisions. Look, wow. I've been down. We've been down this we journey have. already. We have. And I think the thing is, like, everybody's reaction that I'm watching or seeing and just would have been had a front row seat to is the same reaction I had after North Texas. Yep. And I had tweets written out 
that talked about Wilcox being tied intrinsically to Chase Garber's success and what that means for him and his legacy. And is, you know, was there an opportunity to bring in other quarterbacks? And you think about it, and I would have tweeted the same damn thing after North Texas. And I keep deleting them because it's a retread. And what happened last time was I was dead wrong. And I called for Brandon McElwain to come into the game. He lost us multiple games. Chase came back and looked like an all-star, and we all know how it ended. And it's the last time that I, I'm i just not going to bet against him. Wait, didn't, That's you, it. didn't you also call for a modster after North Texas? Oh, I'm sorry. Was it not McElwain? Well, McElwain was the year before with like Chase and McElwain and Forrest and that whole, like, who are we going to play every week? And we have the two. Hell yeah. Okay. Come. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. I called for Monster. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. did call for Monster in 2018. Monster was my boy. But that's so I did want to address this. You know, we were asked, hey, there's been a hesitancy to sort of talk about other quarterbacks yeah. on this podcast. And yeah, I agree. We don't talk about it a lot, mainly because you guys don't understand that there aren't any other options right now. This is it. Wilcox is tied to success to Garbers, and we we don't have Jaden Casey anymore. We don't have Spencer Brash anymore. They're gone. The only guys that we have are guys that you probably don't want to see in the game, and we always fall in love with the backup. And what I'm saying is, like, don't make the mistake that I made after <laughs> North Texas. Be better than me. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say, <laughs> because I can't reasonably think of a, a way here where you introduce another quarterback and you get a different outcome. And I don't know. I feel conflicted about it because I do feel like some of that is self-made. Right. But at the same time, the last time that I doubted Garber's, publicly on Twitter, which he liked <laughs> and still was kind enough to come on this podcast without me there. <laughs> that wasn't a stipulation or anything. It just was a coincidence. <laughs> he came out and played his best football. And so it's sort of, for me, yeah, it was sloppy play or missed throws. It looked average at best. And you can look at that 2019 year and say it was an aberration. I'm just not allowing myself to do it. And I won't allow myself to do it until we get through game four. At least not yet is what you're saying. Right. If we're 0-4, yeah, I'll tear down the whole thing. Yeah. But if, even if we're coming out of that, we lose a close game, 1-3, and three, and it's not necessarily as painfully obvious that was the offense's fault as it was in this game. I, but four games, four games is sort of what I'm bookmarking here. So Rob, am I crazy? Where are you at on this? Because there's a lot of differing opinions online. So I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I mean, where do we start? Should we start? Should we start with the tight ends? Let's start with the tight ends. Uh, because that's yes. I saw a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, during during camp, like I was like, this is they're gonna use this, like this is a part of what they want to do, and now that for right for California has access to PFF stats for the year, um, I have all the snap counts and everything just in, in the palm of my keyboard, 
So uh, this is powered by uh, PFF. Of course, uh, RiferCal, I'm going to shamelessly plug here. RiferCal always has a PFF article that goes up every week. Uh, it's part of our premium subscription. Um, and you can check it out uh, later this week when it drops. But in the meantime, since you're listening to this pod, you get a little bit of access to it, a little bit behind the scenes of it. And let me ask you this, Andy. Uh, how many tight ends do you think played last night or Saturday night? Two or three. Two or three. We actually had four tight ends play. We had Jake Ton just play. We had Colin Moore play. We had Kalecki Latu play. And we had Gavin Reinwald play. Okay. Um, I'm going to break this down. I'm going to go from top to up. All right. So let's see. Uh, Gavin Reinwald, right? Tight end. Plays five snaps. How many of those snaps do you think was for a pass route? Or All run protection. You think it's all run protection. All right. Yeah. Four run protection and one pass play for Kevin Reinwald. All Close right. enough. That's a win for me. That's a win for you. <laughs> Kaleki Latu, five snaps. What do you think his splits were? Three, two, three passes, two blocking. He was uh, four passes and one pass block, no run blocking no, and no runs. Okay. Okay. Let's move, That's an L let's, for move, me. let's move up a little bit. All right. Colin Moore, 22 snaps. Where's the splits? All run blocking. All run blocking. 13 run blocking, 9 pass plays. Oh, balanced. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move to Jake Tonjes. All right, 65 total snaps offensively last on Saturday night. Where's his, where's his splits? Balanced. Balanced. Same as Ryan Wald. 25 run blocking, 38 uh, thirty-eight pass routes, and two two pass blockings. So, so you're saying these are routes? These are they're routes. They're running routes. They're running routes. They're, going, they're not in a pass situation and then block. No, 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 no. Okay. Pass block, it's it's counted as a pass block, a run block, a pass play, or a run play. Gotcha. Okay. They were running routes. So, Tonjus, 38 plays where he's running routes. Uh, Colin Moore, nine plays where he's running routes. Kaleki Latu, four plays where he's running routes. And Kevin Reinwald, one. But Kevin Reinwald is mostly known to be a more of a run blocking or in pass blocking tight end. So, it's, yeah. So is, is that surprising you because just because we only had, I think, three passes actually thrown to them? Yeah. So it does. Does that change your perception of our tight end usage? Yes, it does. Drastically. Drastically. I mean, I mean, the sets that then you are talking about were out there is what you're saying. Right. So the things that you were seeing in full camp. Mm-hmm was there the difference is you didn't see it you don't notice it the because the ball is not traveling to the tight end right your quarterback's not seeing it mm-hmm. well i so that's the that's the toss-up right is is the is is chase not seeing it or is he going through his reads and seeing that he's covered and not going there dude he's depth whoever people were like yeah chase wasn't going through his progression he was going through his dude, progressions. dude was going through his progressions 100 was going through his multiple like Every single time I see him, okay, 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 okay. And he, you know, he plays possession. He really does. Like, he plays the Aaron Rodgers type possession. He's much more likely, I think, and if you tie it back to Wilcox, Wilcox hates turnovers. Yep. Hates them. Mm -hmm. This isn't an offense where we're like, yeah, lay it out there, 50-50 ball, and if it's in an interception, we're okay, it's okay. With it. yeah. Wilcox hates him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like him. 
And so Chase is very much the mold of a Rodgers type where he'll take the sack instead of throwing the pick. Except for that really bad decision on that play that magically landed in Nico's hands. That could have been a pick six. Yeah. And I don't fault him for that. I don't either. Okay. I think but, if he's going through his reads and he's going to his check down, right, I'd have to look up, like, what his average, like, uh, time to throw was. Um, but, I mean, he, he was going to his check downs. Like, he was, look, he was making his reads. And, and I'd, I'd have to actually go back and chart this, right, to figure out what his reads were, if they were covered, and if he was making the right decision. My initial thought is he was making the right decision because he's going to the check down. He's not forcing throws. The only throw that he actually really forced was that interception. And I think even for that interception, I think he saw space. He just couldn't get it down the field deep enough. I think that's where his issue lied uh, for that particular one. But I mean, I'm, I'm, let's look at the passing grades. All right. Um, uh, let's see the passing stats. It doesn't tell you how long he held on to the ball, but, um, uh, Peter did break it down for us and I'm scrolling through like at least 300 Slack messages trying to find it. <laughs> it might take me a bit, uh, but I do know that he, he did. It, it was average. Like it wasn't. So I, I know Nam did call out the protection as basically poor. Yeah. And that was what was interesting. Cause I, I didn't feel like it was the best considering we were playing Nevada, but at the same time, you gave up six sacks to Nevada or two, sacks. six. No, sorry. Two sacks. Sorry. Two sacks, two sacks. But at the same time, I don't know. Isn't it? I, I don't want to derail us. I was like, isn't it more that we're keeping a quarterback who exceeds and excels outside the pocket and just being like, stay in the pocket. That to me was really all right, really, well, really fascinating. Well, I have these. I have the. I have the passing stats, right? And let me um. Let me ask you this: What percentage of his plays do you think he was under pressure versus kept clean in the pocket? Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. What percentage was kept clean versus... What was the splits between, between clean pocket and under pressure on his throws? Hmm. Honestly, Rob, I have no idea. I wish I could give you a better answer than that. So the clean, he was 61% of the time, his pocket was clean. He was under pressure 39%. So that might seem like a big 20% difference, but it's actually not that big when it comes, when you break it down into the number of plays. That's only a nine play difference between under pressure and clean pocket, which... I mean that makes up for for three play or nine plays, but you know, um, I think it's not nothing that there needs to. I mean, 
basically what I'm trying to say is there needs to be a bigger gap. Right? Nine plays is not that big of a gap. He needs to have a cleaner pocket, and they need to do better at pass blocking. The flip side, run blocking, when our run game was successful, was absolutely outstanding. Right? It was... They were they were making running lanes for the guys with ease. With absolute ease. So, yeah. I, I, I mean, and I'm like looking at the passing pressure and, and you know, trying to gauge the O-line stuff, but... He wasn't blitzed 78% of the time. He was only blitzed 22% of the time. His completion percentage, when not blitzed, 69%. When blitzed, 55%. Makes sense. Makes sense that that's the case. The funny part is, and this stat came out on uh, the PFF, their college page. What do you think uh, What do you think was higher? His, his uh, completion percentage when the pocket was clean or his... Uh, completion percentage when he was under pressure. Completion percentage when he was under pressure. You are correct. 76.9% under pressure and 60% when it's clean. So he's actually a really good thrower when he's under duress and making plays, you know, like as he's running. And I think that's kind of what they wanted to do with him getting out in rollouts and stuff. And so, so here's my, my issue from this game, at least offensively, is from everything I saw in the offense, it was very clear they wanted to do like a very Todd Gurley, Sean McVay, that original golf offense, right? Hand the ball off to Gurley a bunch, run the play action off of him because they're going to have to start stacking the box. And with that, you can take the top off or throw to wherever you want to throw. Right. Right. They ran... They ran 85.4% of their plays were not play action pass plays. Only 14.6% were play action pass plays. Which is a very strong change from what I was expecting this offense to be. Right. And you were definitely one of those that were that questioned it too. Because remember, remember when we uh, got the interception from Miles Williams, we started on the one. Right. And what were our three plays? There we weren't pass. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was basically pass, pass, pass. Yeah, pass, pass, pass interference. And I believe the thir- I believe the <laughs> second one was like it was a five wide set too. It wasn't even, you know, we weren't even trying to show that we were going to run. We were going to pass out of our own end zone. And that last one gave us the the pi to to get us out of the hole, right? Which of course ultimately led to the missed field goal attempt. Um. But, like that's what that's where we were going, and we were just going with the pass. So, I'm so I'm still struggling to understand like why we were so effective with our run, but didn't apply our passing game and build off of the run game, um, and just like yeah. decide to just go. We're showing you we're gonna do a pass. We're showing you we're gonna do a run, and we're not gonna mix anything in between. Like there's no gray area. It's gonna be black and white, and that's kind of what we did in this entire. Second half, like that's that's why I was saying, like in the first quarter, it felt like we showed most of our hand of like this is how we're running at you, and it's working, so we're just gonna keep doing that. This is how we're gonna pass at you, and you can't do anything to stop it. At least this this drive, but then they adjusted, and then we're like f, we don't have anything to combat that. Like we don't have anything to throw them out, throw them out. Like I I tweeted out, like I was like it, it feels like they're setting up the run game for something. 
they're setting up the the past <laughs> game for something, but the something never came. Right until it until it was obvious that it was coming. Right until it was way too obvious that it was coming. Yeah. The the most frustrating point of the game was absolutely that drive that you just mentioned. The, in, the post-interception drive? Post-Miles Williams interception. Start at the one. You start rolling downfield. I don't know, something crazy, like 35-yard run from DeCarlos Brooks, followed up by another 15-yard run from the Damian Moore, as I was tweeting out all night. Hey, man, DeCarlos Brooks, da- my, rep, my receipts guy. Came in live today, so I'm ha- came in live on Saturday, so I'm happy. You you get down to the eleven, and you call wide receiver screen, mm-hmm. quarterback keeper, mm-hmm. end zone shot. Yep. Is that right? We didn't get it to the. We didn't get it any closer than that, right? It was at the eleven. Was it the end zone shot, or was no? That wasn't the end zone shot. That was the. Uh, that was the pass to to Nico to convert the third down. The one that went high? Yeah, the one that went high. To the right. If I'm uh, if I'm playing it back. I have I have the drive sheet, so I can let me take a look. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Take a look because I'm wondering if that's the one that we kicked the field goal on. Uh, First and 10 on the Cal 15. Cal starts on the 30. Where does Cal well, start? While you're looking that up, Rob. Yeah. At the time, I looked up our yards per carry. And our yards per carry, when we're in the booth, so you guys know, includes the yards per carry of (laughs) sacks of the quarterback. And Chase was at like zero. (laughs) And we were averaging 6.6 yards per carry. (laughs) To be in that goal line situation on the back of that success and to get that cute with the play calling, just... Dare I say, unforgivable. I have I have the series. drive. I have found the drive. So you want me to read it out to you? Read it out. All right, so Cal starts on their one, right? So on first down, pass incomplete to Monroe Young. Second is pass complete to Remigio for five yards, but penalty on Cal holding, but they decline it. So it's third and five. Chase Garber's pass incomplete to Jeremiah Hunter, but pass interference. So they move down to Cal 21. Cal pass complete to Nico Remigio for five yards. On second and five, more rushes for four then more rushes for six. Then DeCarlos runs for 38 on first down. Then Damian runs for 15 on first down. Then we're on the Nevada 11, first and 10. Garber's pass incomplete to Kiko Crawford. Then Garber's quarterback keeper runs for two. Then Chase is sacked for 13 yards. That's what it was. Right. And then so... Then miss field goal. And we miss a field goal from 40 yards out. So I called it the end zone shot because... That's I felt like it was a coverage sack. We were going, yeah, we were going for the end zone. I mean, that's there's. But I just hate, like, dude, I hate that series. I I don't use that word a lot, and I, ah, uh, god, the wide receiver screen 
I don't know why you felt the need to run it there. Run it on second down. <laughs> like, just keep going with the running game. There was no reason. Even if they get four yards or five yards, you're still in much better position to score to get. This is what I think is like the why Wilcox has always been super aggressive in those situations. And what I was saying was after the game, did he just not was he not able to convince himself that we might actually lose this football game? Because Wilcox, if he's on the road and that's SC, I guarantee you. I mean, I don't he obviously doesn't call plays, but like, let's just say old regime. I know exactly what we're doing. We're setting that up so that we would get a manageable shot at the end zone twice. That's what we did. We try to eat up those short yardage to set it up so we get two good shots at the end zone from a manageable distance. Well, and what we did here was the exact, it felt like the opposite of that. It's like we run out the wide receiver screen. Then we do the, the quarterback keeper makes zero sense. And the, that's the one that's just like, what? But why? Why was, <laughs> why? You were averaging 6.6 .6 yards per carry. Just give it to the running back behind the line. Why did you have to get so creative with the quarterback keeper? And it was in a shitty position to run him out anyways. It wasn't even like it was a smart quarterback keeper where it was like he like rolled out or anything cool. No, it was just like a random run to the left. It was just so stupid. So <laughs> then I just you get that. And now you're in a position where you're at the 11. And instead of going for once again, the five yard gain. You go for the end zone and you take a cover sack. And I'm like, dude, it felt like we were playing for the field goal in a game that we were going to lose in a game where we were not going to be in that position again. And I don't, I felt like you knew that. I felt like I knew that. I felt like our fans knew that. And I felt like the coaching staff didn't. And I regret not asking it at the press conference, because obviously I'm heated about it. That to me was the series that as soon as that went down, it was like, this shit's over, throwing the towel. We, I don't, I, the field goal, the surrender field goal, it was a Dykes move. It was a Dykes move. I felt, I could feel Adams sending me that tweet and saying, please ask why we went for the field goal in that situation. And that was something that I, Adams used to ask me every single time after we would have a Sunny Dykes game. Please ask why we went for the field goal. I didn't get the tweet this, didn't get a message from him this time, but I know he was thinking it. I mean, and where were you at? Like, what were your emotions? Because I, I think I wear mine very clearly. I, but what were yours? Well, I was sitting there trying to trying to think of okay. I think what what he's trying to do is he's is I yeah. You you take the three points. You're down by two, which means you bank on your defense getting one more stop, and then you either play the field goal or the touchdown to win the game. And I mean, let's just I mean, there's so many what if scenarios here, but let's just say he did make the field goal, right? Then then we're down two. We're down two with seven minutes left in the game. Then they, they, the pressure's on them to start eating up the clock, which they kind of did anyways, regardless. So we can, yeah. we can kind of, yeah. we can kind of play that, play that position. But on that drive, right? They, they go, they go six and out. 
or five plays. They go five and out. Five plays, 21 yards, two minutes and 35 seconds. We get the ball back with 436 left, right? Correct. And what happens on that immediate play? It's a play action pass off of shotgun. And then Chase throws it deep to the right, but leaves it short and it's intercepted. Which, by the way, I'm still fuming about that re- replay review because I... I can't say I'm 100% sure, but I am 99.99% sure his hand was out of bounds when he landed. The DB who caught the ball. But the mm. the positioning of the camera didn't show the field. It just cut out right up, like above his hand, like in any of the the things. And then there's that stupid ticker on the bottom so you, we can't even see the full the full camera angle. Um so they ruled that an interception and then they have the ball on our 50-yard line. The crazier part is the Bears get the stop again. <laughs> we got the ball back again with a minute 55 left. So for me, for me, the, the frustrating one for this was that final one. It wasn't the field yeah. goal one. It was the one minute 55, two minute drill. Pass to Kiko for nine yards. Good. Pass to Jake Chon- Jake Tonjes for zero yards. Okay, I, that, that was fine if he went for the check down there. But then we get called for holding on that play. So we go back. Right. And so it's now in two is second and eleven. Passes to Dancy for three yards. Passes to Trayvon Clark for three yards. Then pass to <laughs> Marcel Dancy uh, on fourth and five. Incomplete. It just like goes straight through the hands of Marcel Dancy. And then we lose the game. Like that's the one I'm upset about. Like I you I, I get that they're probably playing prevent defense, but at the same time, send people <laughs> send more guys deep. And take you can get more than three you can yards. Get more than three or nine defense. yards if they're playing prevent defense. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Like, I don't understand why. Like, our we were, we should be, we should be, we should have been eating up yards because they wanted to prevent the touchdown. Because we're down, we're still down five at this point. Like, we need a touchdown. No, it looked like we were playing against a normal defense. Exactly. Like, and and here's the kicker: we had that was our second two minute drill offense. Right. And the one in the first half looked just as bad. Right. So twice, when you're supposed to open up the playbook, the defense, you know, tends to get tired because you're going up tempo. Most of the time when you run the two-minute offense, things start to work that didn't necessarily work prior. And we looked almost worse. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss of words. Like, just... I mean, I'm looking at I'm looking at even the first two drives and like just the, the play diversity here, which I think was like superb. Run, pass, pass, run, run, and then get the first down. Then on first down, pass, 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 get the first down. Then on first down, pass, run, pass, we get the first down. Run, 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 we get the first down. Run run touchdown like that's a pretty diverse play calling set right and i don't remember me being frustrated on those two like touchdown drives of like why are we constantly doing this or why does it why like it's not one of those like i guess that works like where we shrug it was one of those moments of like oh they're actually like they're methodically going down and they're they're keeping the defense on their toes of what we're gonna do and then after that second drive it just like went to shambles <laughs> like it was let's see 
pass rush, pass sack. Punt. <laughs> run, <laughs> run, pass, pass, punt. <laughs> like, I... It felt like they were trying to they were trying to like get a spark to do something, but they weren't running any plays that were like exciting or like, you know, trying to electrify some people and, and get the crowd involved a little bit. It felt it was that's and that's the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about. Unless you have something else to talk about, which was just the just the total mundane like football we witnessed at that game. I know you're gonna. I I know that's gonna. I know that bugs you. Yeah a ton because so I do want to set that up. Let me just have one more thing here before we move over to the crowd and how awesome that was. What I didn't like in the Wilcox press conference was, and I truly believe he's probably delegated the offense to Musgrave. I mean, other to a, to a certain degree, Well, he's you know? talked about that with us, right? When we did like the football one-on-one stuff, like, you know, he talked about how he doesn't select which plays we're going to run, but he does big picture stuff where it's like, hey, if we get the first down, let's run it here on first, like on first down. Or, you know what, you're going to get four downs, you know, to go for this. Like he does the big picture stuff, um, but he doesn't like say like, oh, we, we're going to like pick a run play inside. Like he's not that type of manager. And so what I found, I think he was unprepared or not unprepared. He just hadn't had enough time with the information yet. But when we were asking him why was the offense not that effective, Wilcox's response was, well, some, and this is totally ad lib, you know, go listen to the press conference for the actual, yeah, yeah. <laughs> actual quote. But it was something along the lines of, well, we gave, we had a couple of your know, runs that didn't go anywhere. And that kind of put us behind this, you know, and, but of course that's going to happen. There's going to be a, I don't know. Like, are we living in the Javid era where we just continue to run for six yards of carry the entire game? We're not there yet. We're not even close. So, of course, there's going to be a, a time when Damian Morley gets two yards instead of 10 or eight or six. And he played great, but it's just like natural. It's football. The, it's, the answer for why your offense is ineffective or became ineffective cannot be that your running back was stopped for a two yard run on first down. That it's a totally normal scenario. We should be able to get out of that. And I was just like, dude, that doesn't hold any weight with me. And I'm sure I could be misinterpreting. There's ways of absolutely, you know, making, I'm, I'm going to once again, place faith here, but I think that was the most frustrating thing is you go back and you look at it and it's like, well, what happened? Well, it was like, well, shit, Nevada brought more guys in to deal with the run. And instead of taking advantage of it, as every single former player was tweeting, we didn't press them deep when we had one-on-one coverage. And if you're not going to take those risks, if you're not going to take those shots then the defense is going to be able to adapt and adjust. And I think that's what happened. And so I don't know if it was Chase seeing cover two and then getting scared out of the idea of tossing a ball out there to our receivers. Dude, our receivers are good. Our receivers can go and get the ball. It's, this is not the era of Vic Wharton. 
it isn't it. This is not it. And uh, I miss Makai Polk badly, badly. I mean, not even not even Jeremiah Hunter. Jeremiah Hunter was great, dude. I mean, I love these guys. I just miss Makai. I have his damn jersey. <laughs> well, you have Maven Anderson's jersey now. <laughs> yeah, now it's Maven Anderson. But at the time, it was a sick Makai jersey. Um, so it's just super frustrating. I don't think that could possibly be an appropriate answer to what was happening. And yeah, we got stuffed up on a couple of runs. Big fucking deal. Adapt. Seriously. <laughs> this is probably the first time I've dropped. One of the few times I've dropped an F on this podcast. But just adapt. Just freaking adapt to it. Use like I and I don't understand. So is that a quarterback thing? I have no idea. Is it a, a play call thing? I have no idea. All I know is whatever we showed out there, the second and third quarter was as frustrating of a stretch as North Texas was. And after that game, I called for a quarterback change or I said, we don't have a quarterback direct quote. And so to go full circle here, I think we have a quarterback, but for whatever reason, the preparation that we had done did not remotely put that quarterback in a position where they felt comfortable doing what they needed to do to win the game. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the thing, like the coaching staff always preaches on. It's like, we want we're our job is to put our players in the best position to win. And I, I can unequivocally guarantee you, you can take those words and find some presser in the past where one of the coaches has said that word for word, <laughs> word for word. All right. But as you said, it felt like there were play, there were times where we didn't put him in that position to win. And I, there, this isn't a knock on Chase, in my opinion. I, Chase is a very good quarterback. I think he, he can win us games and he can take us pretty deep. The question I have and the question that a lot of other guys had that on the staff that we were talking to, the writing staff, is that is this what we're doing the best system to utilize for Chase's skill set. I don't if we put like let's flip let's flip it right. Like if we took Carson Strong from Nevada and his skill set right now, I think it might be perfect for this system. It's it's <laughs> yeah. it's that's what it is. It's a very pocket uh presence oriented system. I think if you put Jared Goff there, sure he was the number one pick and he's probably one of the greatest quarterbacks ever to play at Cal, but just from his skill set, he wasn't a running quarterback. So his ability to stay in the pocket was essential for his success, which is what they did with that air raid. And I think he can do that here with this passing system. With Chase, he's good in the pocket with making one or two reads, right? But he's better when he's able to make reads on the run and do and make multiple guys miss and make those reads and be able to work with his feet a little bit. But you sat him in the pocket for too long. He went to his check down instead of being able to take off and run, which I think is one of his greatest attributes. And the second thing is you were forcing him to throw long in the pocket, deep from the pocket, which I don't think is his strength. If you're going to throw deep, I think his, his deep ball is better when he's on the run, when he can get some momentum. He's not one of the guys that just takes one step forward and then just launches it, you know, 50 yards. He's like a guy who's like, you know, scrambling. And then like, as he's running forward, just like throws it deep over the top of the corner of the safety. And I think that's where his deep ball is. 
So I think that's where the skill set of him is most effective. I just don't think that this system is the best. And my my like tinfoil hat version of all this or like why I think this is the case is because I think Musgrave spent so much time in the NFL that in the NFL, think about it, right? You're the offense according to the NFL. You get a quarterback. Quarterback doesn't work your system. What do you do? You get a new one. You get a new one. Cut them, do whatever, you get a new one. Can't do that in college. You, you absolutely can't. Because it's the guys either that you have on the roster or the guys that you're bringing in. If you haven't brought in any guys that fit your system, then you have to work with whatever you got. But you only get four years with them. It's not like it's not like the NFL where you have these guys to contracts that are five, six years and you get to mold them into the quarterback that you want them to be. But you have to work with whatever you, you have. And clearly, so like, that's the that's the kind of the double-edged sword of bringing in like an NFL guy, right? Is like, yeah, he has this thing that he wants to do, and he's gonna ask his quarterback or his room or, or wherever to do it. If that's not effective, is he going to adapt it to change, or is he is he gonna keep going with it to instill that system into not only that quarterback but all the quarterbacks below? Because like, think about it. If they if he starts changing the system now and like adjusting then all of the backups and what they have to do that changes immediately as well right and what they're teaching them so like what what would you prefer is is the question and i think some people would say you need to keep adjusting your quarterback some people would say you need to recruit based on the system you want to run and what they can accomplish but clearly a, a year and a half turnaround isn't enough to refresh that room into brand new quarterbacks that fit musgrave system right like that's you know who knows what why Jaden Casey and, and Spencer Brash left, but you know maybe it was a system fit, like maybe they didn't see them working in the system, maybe they didn't see them upsetting or un, unseating Chase as the number one guy. And you bring in like a, a second year or a grad transfer Ryan Glover to be the backup, but I mean Musgrave said it himself if if uh. If he's in this, if he's in the room, or what's it? If he's on the field, they're gonna have to change up what they do offensively to fit him, is what they said. Which means they're gonna have to break down because he's only been here for three weeks. They can't run the full offense with Glover, and so that's why that's that's I'm adding to your point about people saying, "Well, we need the backup." I was like, eh, like, no, no. Like I've seen Kai play too, and like I think he's good for the future. But he also was mistiming five-yard slants. And that's as a true freshman. So I think that'll come with him. But if he was missing that in practice, like, he's not going to be ready. Give me one second. There's a mosquito in here. I'm going to touch him. 